Now, let me say that you may have been a Christian for 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. And you may have grown old, but you've not necessarily grown up. God wants you to grow up. He wants you to become like Christ. I meet some Christians in this church who have only been saved two years, and they're more mature than some people who come here who've been saved for 30 years. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are beginning a study in the book of James, and today Dr. Brogy begins his biblical exposition of James in chapter 1, which contains some of the most profound theological truths in the New Testament. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins his study in the book of James. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Proverbs of the New Testament, the Epistle of James. I want to begin a brand new series on James, which is an extremely practical book, and yet it contains some of the most profound theological truths in all the New Testament. Like the teachings of the Lord in the Gospel, the book of James mirrors sometimes the harsh denunciations that Christ makes against sin, along with great comfort. And I'm convinced that one of the major problems today in the body of Christ, especially in the American church, is spiritual immaturity. And so I want to study this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And if you listen carefully and you will apply what James shows us, you will never, ever be the same. If the great evangelist Billy Graham was correct, he said that in his judgment, 90 to 95% of those who have met Christ in the American church have never grown. They've simply remained baby Christians. Well, God wants you to grow. God wants you to mature so that you can reflect Christ, that you can glorify him and carry out the mission that he has. And too many churches are just playpens for baby Christians where they need to be workshops for those who are engaged in the faith. Now, let me say that you may have been a Christian for 10, 20, maybe even 30 years. And you may have grown old, but you've not necessarily grown up. God wants you to grow up. He wants you to become like Christ. I meet some Christians in this church who have only been saved two years, and they're more mature than some people who come here who've been saved for 30 years. Now, why is it that people don't grow? Well, sometimes, very simply, they've never been born from above. Unless you are born again, Jesus said you cannot enter and you cannot see or comprehend the kingdom of God. You have to be born from above, and some people think they are, but they really are not. And they're always wondering why it is that they're trying to change and they can't seem to change. Listen, you cannot grow spiritually until you are born spiritually. A second essential component of spiritual growth that James will also highlight is that of spiritual food. And you may come to this church and you will notice that most of our members have a Bible in tow. And if you don't own a Bible, you need to bring one. You don't need to look off of your wife's Bible or your husband's Bible. You need to bring your own Bible. And if you don't have one, you come to meet the pastor and you'll get a beautiful Bible. But coming to this church without a Bible would be like going to a map reading course without a map. You'll just be lost. And the reason many don't bring one is because they've come to church for years and years in different places, and you don't really need a Bible to follow the sermon. And sadly... Bible-based preaching in our day is not the norm, it's the exception. 
And we are suffering from a malady that the prophet Amos wrote about that the people of Israel were suffering in his day. Listen to these words from Amos chapter 8. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And by the way, that's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture. It was not only true in Amos's day, it's true in our day, that when God's words are rejected, you are no longer able to really hear and comprehend God's word. God sends a famine as a form of judgment, not a famine for bread. They had already seen that as one mark of discipline. God was hoping to get their attention with that, but rather a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. And the Israelites in Amos's day had rejected God's word. And he discusses that throughout this letter. And God basically said, enough is enough. You will no longer have a clear word from me. And since Jesus said, quoting Moses, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, a famine for the word of God is worse than a famine for physical food. And today in America, we are seeing the exact same truth lived out that Amos saw in his day. People are challenging the truth of Scripture. They are mocking God's Word. And so it's getting harder and harder to find pastors who will actually teach it. And it's getting harder and harder for pastors who teach it to find people who are willing to hear it. The prophet Samuel recorded this phenomena in his day. Listen to these words. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli... And word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. When King Saul sought direction from God, Samuel writes, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And James will show us in this letter that the same fearful prospect can happen in our day if we do not listen to God's word and obey it. I'm not saying you can't hear it physically. He's talking about people who cannot hear it spiritually. It does not mean that God will remove all the copies of the Bible. That's impossible. But what it does mean is fewer and fewer pastors will teach it, and fewer and fewer people will listen to it. Listen, we have a couple of dozen people who drive about an hour to come to church here every single week. Why? Because they can't find a church in their area that will open the Word of God and teach it. That's a judgment. That's a judgment that God brings on a nation, and he can bring on an individual because of neglect, because of unfaithfulness, and because of sin in the heart. The Bible prophesies this will happen at the end of the age. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul wrote, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith and pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. When you see the word faith with the article, the faith, He's referring not to an act of faith, but to that body of truth delivered through the apostles once and for all that we call the Holy Bible. Likewise, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle wrote, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Ladies and gentlemen, that day has come. But while that may be happening in our nation does not necessarily have to happen in your heart this morning. 
And so James is going to show us how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God not just to save us, to justify us, but also to sanctify us. You cannot grow on Bibleist teaching. Some people don't grow for the simple reason they are not born again. Other people are not growing because they do not have a pastor who opens the Scriptures, or they're not on their own trying to study the Word of God. But there's a third or critical dimension to why people don't grow, and James will also highlight it, that you must not only hear the Word of God, but you must be willing to obey it. And so that becomes a prominent theme in this epistle. In fact, as you study the Bible, you will recognize that there are two prominent themes that run through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One theme is the way of God. That is, it's written to the lost man, showing him how he can be made right with God. And the other major theme is the walk with God. It's written to the believer, showing him how he should live in light of the fact that God has saved him. And while James deals with both themes, the prominent emphasis of this apostle is our walk with God. He's not interested in stained glass theology. He's interested in grass-stained advice. He wants to put your Christianity into shoe leather. He's writing to people who are high on orthodoxy, but who are low on orthopraxy. He wants your belief to be translated into your behavior. Your creed is to be transfused into your conduct. How a man believes should affect how he behaves. And he is going to underscore that over and over and over again. This is a practical little letter. Have you read it lately? Now, I want to encourage you as we work through it over the next several months that you read it once a week. It's only 108 verses. It'll only take you about 20 minutes in a single sitting to read it. But if you will read it at least once a week over these next several months as we study this great little letter, I promise you, you will never be the same. And by the time you are done, you'll be able to think your way all the way through the book of James. Now, reading this epistle is kind of like going to the dentist. The dentist might say, now, this might hurt just a little bit. And some of the things that James is going to tell us, you're going to say, ouch, that hurt. I mean, he will leave no stone unturned. My father was an ophthalmologist. He practiced for 50 years doing surgery. And occasionally someone would call the home on the weekend rather than meet him at the hospital because it wasn't that urgent or meet him at the office. He'd say, just come to my home because it was a small enough problem, some small foreign body that needed to be taken out of the eye. And and my mom would say, my mother had eight children. She's still alive. She's 93 years old. She said, one of dad's patients is coming. He's going to be here in 20 minutes. And my, we would just turn that house over. We would clean up the front foyer in the living room. We'd dust, we'd vacuum. As kids, we stuffed more things under the couch and more things in the closet. You couldn't believe it. I mean, if they had only seen the place 20 minutes earlier, well, James is going to open every drawer. He's going to open every single closet. He's going to open your checkbooks. He's going to examine your devotional life. He's going to talk about your prayer life. He's going to talk about your interactions with other believers on a daily basis. And so the Spirit of God, well, he uses James like a physician who would give a physical examination. Oh, about every five years I go in for a physical. I know I should do it annually, but I don't. And 
Last time I went in, they said, well, you're at that age, you need to have a colonoscopy. And when I heard about it, I thought, what sick mind invented this procedure? That has to be unbiblical. Well, James is going to take us into the examination room. He's going to listen to our hearts. He's going to ask us to stick out our tongues and say, ah. And he's going to explore your motives and your thoughts. And like a doctor who scribbles something on a piece of paper that only the pharmacist with the gift of interpretation can read, James is going to tell you something to do. He's going to ask you to apply these truths. In the Greek New Testament, I counted them. There are 54 imperatives. That is 54 commands with an exclamation mark after them because James wants to take these precepts and put them into practice. Over and over, he's going to say, do this or do that. It's the kind of book that will affect you on every single level. Now, if you have the note-taking outline this morning, you can see I have four simple objectives. It was Aristotle who said, like archers, we will stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. So let me delineate the lines of the target this morning. First, I want us to get an overview of the book, the big picture. Second, I want us to understand who is James, which James, who is the human author who writes this book. Third, who are the recipients, and why is that important for us to know in reading and understanding this letter? And fourth, why did James write the book of James? Now, today we're going to just study first one verse, the first verse, and so much of it is foundational and somewhat historical, but you need to pay attention Don't let your mind wander this morning, because what we are going to cover, like in many lessons when we deal the very first message on a new book of the Bible, is foundational to the months that will follow. And at least if you fall asleep and you wake up, you'll know where we are in the outline, all right? So let's get started. How does this book fit together? How does the book of James fit together? Now, for many of you, when you take a long trip, especially a place where you've never been before, you want to know where you're going and what it is you're going to see. And so perhaps the best way to begin our studies is to try to get the big picture and overview of this short little letter. Now, I need to tell you there are some Bible teachers that will tell you that it's impossible to outline the book of James because he actually deals with over 30 different topics. But if you will read it and reread it over and over and over again, you will discover that the subjects in which he addresses largely fall into three major categories. And again, I've said it many times, if you have the big picture of a book, you know, Genesis, four events, four people. Oh, I I know how the book of Genesis unfolds. And then it becomes a tool in your life, not only to help you when you're looking for something, but also as you're helping others and you're discipling other people. So let's see if we can climb a contextual tree this morning to get an overview of this book. As you can see on this chart this morning, it divides into three sections. Chapter one deals with the development of faith, the development of faith. And uh, he addresses three problems that God uses to develop our faith. In chapter 1, he deals with the problem of pain, followed by the problem of temptation, followed by the problem of not applying God's truth to your life. So James will speak in this section on how our faith develops or progresses. 
When you come to chapters 2 through 4, you turn the corner again, and he deals with the distortion of faith. And he talks about our testimony, about our tongue, and things it is that we should avoid. He deals with our testimony and, and our need never to show partiality. He is going to deal with our tongue. He will speak about the man who thinks he's religious. He thinks he is spiritual. And oftentimes we measure our spirituality by how often I go to church or how many Bible lessons I've studied in the last month or classes I teach or Bible studies I attend or scripture I've memorized or how much theological knowledge I've obtained. But James is going to show us that if you are really spiritual, let's see what you do with the tongue. That's the real litmus test. And so he deals with our testimony, our tongue, and then he will deal with things we are to avoid. Now, continuing in chapter 4, he deals with things we are to avoid. And again, he highlights three problems. First, the problem of worldliness. Worldliness in the church. God calls you, if you've been born again, not to be worldly, but to be holy. The second problem, that's chapter 4, 1 through 10. And then in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he deals with the problem of judging unfairly condemning another brother or sister in Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he will deal with the problem of perspective. How do I, as a believer who is headed for heaven, live my life wisely so that when I come to the end of my life, I've not wasted my life. When you come to chapter 5, you enter into the third section of the letter where he deals with the display of faith, the display of faith. He will show us in chapter 5 how faith is to be displayed in the different realms of life. In verses 1 through 6, he will deal with the realm of our possessions. In verses 7 through 12, he'll deal with the display of our faith as it relates to patience. And then he will, in the closing verses of the fifth chapter, deal with the realm of prayer. So it becomes very clear in the final verses of this chapter that none of this is possible without prayer because prayer changes things. And as you read this letter, and I want to encourage you to read it, start reading it this week. At least do it once this week. But it would be great if you did it once a week until we're done with the book. You're reading a man who is not dealing with theory, but with practice. This is a man who lived the life of prayer. He was nicknamed in the first century, Old Camel Knees, because his knees were so callous from the hours he spent on prayer. And so he's not talking about something you just read in a book on prayer. He's talking about something that had characterized his life. Now, that's the big picture, okay? Secondly, let's ask another important question. Who is James? Who is James? Now, of course, in the opening verse, the author identifies himself. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The challenge is, is that there are four different James in the New Testament. And some would say, well, it's impossible to figure out what James it is, how wrong they are how wrong they are. By process of elimination and by external evidences, it's quite clear who this James is. Now, don't lose your finger here. Let's talk about the four James. This is fundamental this morning, and this will help you with other realms of your Bible study, but turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. 
in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, four James are directly mentioned or alluded to. In Acts chapter 1, there was 120 disciples in the upper room, and they're doing what Jesus commanded them to do. They are waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember from the first half of the chapter, Christ had given them specific instructions to wait in the city of Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were not to try to go out to win the very first person to Jesus until God the Holy Spirit came to be their helper. Now, let's pick it up in verse 12, Acts 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Here's a picture. If you come to Israel with me, and we have a trip planned, God willing, uh, in September of 21, you'll have to be vaccinated, it looks like, the Israeli government. So if you are against needle pricks, you won't be able to come. I, people have already asked me, are you going to get vaccinated? Of course. I'm going to wait till Jerry Stokes get his and see how he does, and then I'll get vaccinated. <laughs> but here's the deal. If you go to Israel, one place we will definitely stand by God's grace is the top of the Mount of Olives. If you're on the Mount of Olives, that's where these men were. When Christ ascends from heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives, you look across this valley called the Kidron Valley. And, of course, Messiah is going to eventually come back to the Mount of Olives. That's why all these Jewish people want to be buried there. And he's going to go up onto the Temple Mount. And so they're buried, feet looking at the uh, dome there. That's where the temple originally was. So when they're raised up, they'll be looking at the Messiah. Now, the Lord instructed them to return to Jerusalem, and the Bible says a Sabbath day journey away. That is defined in the Old Testament as 2,000 cubits, or about three-fifths of a mile. That's very instructive, because they leave the top of the Mount of Olives, and it brings them into the city limits. I was there with my son Jeremy. I said, well, let's walk across the Kidron Valley and up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And man, it, it, was, it was more involved than we thought. It just looked like, oh, it's a few hundred yards. It, it, it's it's three-fifths of a mile just about to bring you there. A Sabbath day journey. Further, we read in verse 13, and when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room. Now stop right there for a moment. We know from Acts that the location of this event was in Solomon's portico on the Temple Mount. Here's a picture of the, uh, the, the temple in the first century. Uh, one of the things you do sometimes when you go to Israel is you see this first century model of a city. And it took one gentleman 30 years to build it. It's magnificent. It's breathtaking what he did. And uh, there is a temple in the middle of the structure, and you can see to the left the portico. Here's another picture of Solomon's portico, which again reminds you that after the Babylonians came in and they flattened the place, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, that this was rebuilt, both Solomon's portico and the temple. And you read of it in Acts 3.11, for instance, the man who is lame, begging at a gate, it took place here at Solomon's portico. And Josephus, of course, recognized, too, that it was in place. And so this is an important place. Now, the traditional site of the upper room is a place today they call Mount Zion, not technically the Mount Zion of the Bible. And it's southeast and outside of the Temple Mount. 
but it does not fit the geographical framework that's described there. Sometimes someone wants to build a church, and they say an event happened there, and it really didn't, but they built a church there, and the Scripture would say, no, it couldn't have happened here, and here's why. In some places, we don't know for sure, but some things we know definitively. So this is Pentecost. Shavuot, as the Jews call it. To this day, the Jews every year, they celebrate Pentecost. We've seen the fulfillment of it. They're still looking for it. And of course, um, it's right in the area of the Temple Mount where Pentecost takes place. Because they're in an upper room, some think actually in one of the rooms in Solomon's portico. If not, it's got to be right near it, adjacent to it. Because they come out of the upper room, and Peter preaches the gospel to thousands and thousands of people there in the southern steps. People from every nation. Why are they there? They're in the temple for Pentecost. And God sends a message that day when the 120 come out displaying the work of the Holy Spirit that under the old covenant, he had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, he has a people who are his temple. And so they believe on the Lord Jesus. Brethren, what must we do? Repent, believe on Jesus, then be baptized. Well, where can you be baptized? There's no body of water in Jerusalem, no river there. Well, right outside of the temple entrances are what we call mikvahs. Here's a picture of a mikvah. Here's one that I picture I took of when I was there in Jerusalem. I showed some of you who've been with me some of the mikvahs. They're kind of like big baptismal fonts. And the Jew, before he went into the temple, would go into the mikvah to ceremonially cleanse himself. Uh, there are some 48 mikvah baths that have been uncovered. There's many more than that, but at least 48 that we have found, we archaeology have found. So where did they baptize these 3,000 new converts? Right here in these mikvah baths. Some people say, well, I want to get baptized in the ocean. That seems more spiritual. Or I want to get baptized in the river. Well, actually, the very first born-again believers were baptized kind of like in a tank we have back here, a mikvah bath. That's how they did it. So on the day of the Pentecost, right outside of the temple region, God sent a message that he was changing locations by which his spirit would dwell. Look further. Some of the 120 are identified here by name in verse 13. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Now, these men are known as the Twelve. They were the Twelve Apostles. There's, of course, eleven here uh, because Judas is missing. He had hung himself, if you remember. And by the way, when you read a list like this, you have to ask, why did the Lord select these guys? I mean, sometimes people think of the Apostles as, you know, men with halos, people who were virtually flawless with a rock-like character. The truth of the matter is, is not one halo on the whole bunch. And they're much like most of us sitting here this morning, just ordinary, everyday people. I mean, think about some in the list. Peter, he denies the Lord three times. He's present here. Philip, 
who kept trying to figure out how are we going to feed 5,000 households on 200 denarii. Thomas, the doubter, as he's nicknamed, was here. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And all the men listed here had an argument, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, all 100% forsook and abandoned him. So why did Jesus choose these men and not some others who were equally qualified or maybe better qualified? If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 877- 787-7478 and requesting program James 001A. Maybe you would like to listen to Dr. Brogy's messages offline, in the car, or on a walk. You can do that by downloading the Search the Scriptures app found in the Apple and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. On the app, you can download messages to listen to anywhere, anytime. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his study in the book of James. Join us then as we search the scriptures.